Hello, it's 28th of October, and this is episode four of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis, and commentary. We focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. So, hello, Kirsty. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Good. And how's your week in Star Wars been? Uh, it's been good so far. I've been reading Ahsoka. I finally got my hands on the novel. Oh, yay! Amazing. I remember you saying you needed that. Yeah, um, I'm enjoying it so far, but I'm not enjoying it as much as I have the other canon novels. Mm. I kind of heard really mixed things about it. Like I, like, I know people really love Ahsoka, but I've kind of heard that the writing isn't that great in the book. Yeah, that's kind of how I'm feeling. I mean, I'm only partway through, so I'm hesitant to give a full review. Obviously, I can't. Um, but I think I've just been spoiled by Claudia Gray and Christy Golden, who wrote Dark Disciple. I really enjoyed all of those. Um, so we'll see. I'll talk about it um, more in a future episode, probably. But Yeah, no, we'll definitely have to do review segments of you, Kirsty. You're much better at your reading than I am. <laughs> I'm really bad at keeping up with it. Um, How's right, your week? Oh, yeah, my week. Um, nothing particularly exciting has happened. Uh, the main thing I'd kind of like to mention is more of like a rant. And it's basically on IMDb, the site that famously anyone can edit, someone had added Nuke Skywalker to the credits list of Star Wars Episode Eight, And some people were actually taking this seriously. Like, is it making YouTube videos about this seriously? And acting as if this character will be Luke's son. That Luke has some secret child he decided to call Nuke. And it's just like, it's so wrong at every level. Why would anyone want that? And also, why would anyone think that Luke was bonkers enough to name his child Nuke? Does he have like a whole like rhyming band of children? Like, is there like Duke and Nuke and Suk and Rook? <laughs> It's just like, no, I know people really, really, really want Luke to have children, but you shouldn't want him to the extent that you want him to have a son called Luke. Is yeah. this wrong? Didn't people last year think that Donald Gleason was going to be Luke's son? <laughs> yes, they did. And that's actually really funny in retrospect, because when you think about what a maniac General Hux is, and if you think about some kind of like alternate dimension where Hux is actually Luke's son, gone really, really off the rails and wow. decided to like rebel in the most major way. And that would be hilarious. Like it is actually quite cruel, but it would just shatter so many people's dreams. <laughs> and in light of all the like frenzies surrounding Luke reproducing, I can't help but find that quite funny. Yeah, I I wonder if part of this because obviously nuke skywalker no one can take that seriously but i wonder if part of it has been about this gradual realization that ray might not be luke's kid mm. and the need for him to have a good child so that there's a good skywalker of this new generation yeah definitely i think that's very likely to be part of it to be honest it just seems way too suspicious to me otherwise <laughs> yeah like people just they can't cope with the idea that Kylo Ren is the last Skywalker. So they have to pull Skywalkers from hats like white rabbits. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, fine, I get it. You want a legacy child. I understand that. I can sympathise with that. But 
no, there, there, are, there should be limits. There should totally be limits. Yeah, I, I think part of it also is that we're just in a bit of a spoiler drought right now because we're so close to Rogue One. Oh, God, tell me about it. <laughs> I think we've said it before, but it's like, please be gone, Rogue One. I, I'm looking forward to you. I want to see you. But you really are just blocking out time that could be spent on beautiful, beautiful episode eight spots. <laughs> and that's really bad, but it's kind it of how I feel. But it, yeah, it's how most of us feel if we're on ourselves. Yeah, it's best not to self-delude. <laughs> right, so I think with that said, we can probably move on to news. And the first bit of news is about the new Han Solo movie. And it's very exciting. The news is that Donald Glover has been cast as Lando Calrissian. And we have a quote from the directors of the Han Solo movie, which goes thusly. We're so lucky to have an artist as talented as Donald join us. These are big shoes to fill and an even bigger cape. And this one fits in perfectly, which will save us money on alterations. Also, we'd like to publicly apologise to Donald for ruining Comic-Con for him forever. So I think that's really cute. It's a really nice way to announce it and to like welcome him into the franchise because I don't really know Donald Glover. I haven't seen him in anything that I'm aware of, apart from like that gif where he enters a burning room holding a pizza box and he's like, what the hell has happened? That's literally my sole exposure to Donald Glover. But he seemed really cool. I watched an interview of him and he seemed like a really nice, charismatic guy. And yeah, I'm really excited to see what he does with it. How about you, Kirsty? Have you seen him in anything? Yeah, I've seen Community, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also in Girls as Lena Dunham's boyfriend at one time. Oh, wow. That's like six degrees of separation. I know. That's quite funny, isn't it? Obviously, because of Adam Driver. Um, yeah. I need to check out Atlanta, which is his new show. Supposedly, it's amazing. So I'm really excited for this news. Obviously, we've heard about it as rumours for a long time. It was almost like fan casting, like everyone thought that he would be great in the role and it just seems to have coincided with what Lucasfilm seemed to think. So that's really cool. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Sometimes I think fan casting is a really bad idea because you generally can't trust the Joe public to know who's the right person for a role. So I remember with Han Solo, a lot of people were saying this guy who just happened to look a hell of a lot like Harrison Ford. And he didn't necessarily have great acting talent. He just looked a lot like Harrison Ford. And that's a bad reason to pick someone to play a part. That is a terrible reason to pick someone. But for a part that's so iconic and crucial, like for a side part, maybe, but for the main character, no. Yeah, no, it's more about making sure they're the right fit and that they can actually really do a good job and sell themselves as a younger version of this character. Which I think Eldon... uh, Eleanor Reich, I horribly butchered his name, sorry, I can't pronounce it. Um, and yeah, I think he's going to be able to do that. He strikes me as quite a good presence, and he has like that cheeky smile that I think is right for him. So I like him, and I can see him and Donald Glover working well together. Like, I've seen the photoshops, you know, of them, like in the Han and Lando costumes, and <laughs> they just look right. They look at home in them, which I like. Yeah, this is making me really excited for that movie, and I hadn't previously been so much. Mm. Um, I think the casting seems good. So. Yeah, no, like Han Solo isn't like my favourite character, and th- that movie isn't at the top of my priorities. But like, I do like the news I'm hearing about it, and I I do find it quite intriguing to think that we might be revisiting some of those like adventures alluded to between Han and Lando. 
yeah. like because obviously we know that Lando lost the Falcon to Han in some kind of like gambling like card game or something. And yeah, I'm quite intrigued in seeing whether we get that on screen. Like I'm not sure if they'd go that far. Um but I think that might be a nice place to end the movie almost because I've heard that this is gonna be quite like a light hearted, jolly movie with like its tongue firmly in cheek. And so I could see like ending with like hands speeding off in the Falcon and Landon going like Ah I hate you. <laughs> yeah, I wondered if it would leave their friendship kind of on an uncertain note. Because then we know that they make up in time, but um, that then you are you are getting that kind of prequel to when we first meet Lando in Empire Strikes Back, and it all just kind of fits together well. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that'd be like a good place to end it, like from that angle, because like you say, then we do get that resolution. Um, but like, it, I think it would feel right, and it would make the movie itself feel like it has its place and it served a purpose. If that makes sense. Like, I don't think they need to go back and fill in every gap, like, because of, like, every tiny line alluding to something that Han did when he was younger. But it's going to be cool to see some of that. I just hope they don't go overboard. Yeah. I I, I have hopes for this film. Yeah, no, same. I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm trying to be more optimistic about my Star Wars. <laughs> so, fingers crossed. Right, and with that done, we can move on to our next segment, which is about Rogue One. And basically, this one is about Director Krennic being revealed to be more of a working class Imperial. And so this is essentially from an interview with Director Gareth Edwards in USA Today. And the quote goes like this. It feels like if the Empire ever had a job vacancy, they go to the Royal Shakespeare Company to headhunt people. I like the idea that Ben's character was much more working class and rose in the ranks through sheer force of personality and ideas. That said, Krennic hits a brick wall in the hierarchy where they won't let him into the club and it's going to turn into a them or us situation, either Krennic or Tarkin and the others. So, what do we think? Does this take you by surprise, Kirsty, that they're going for this kind of more humble like spin on Krennic's character? It does, actually, because in the trailer he sounded just as posh as all the other Imperial officers. Yeah, no, I found that. Like, because... I, I, I'm like common as fuck I am <laughs> and like I recognise when I hear like a working class British person and whatever Ben Mendelsohn is going for is not working class British person right yeah, I, actually, I would sound quite posh to me I wonder if he affects that accent and that's kind of the point or if we're not if we're assuming that working class people in Star Wars would have a working class English accent <laughs> you know yeah like I'd really love it if they all had like proper West Country Volace. <laughs> I like the quote because um, I'm from near where Gareth Edwards grew up in Warwickshire, and nice. so right next to where the Royal Shakespeare Company is based, obviously in Stratford. Mm. And it is kind of, you're right next to it, but um, culturally it feels very far away and elitist. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It kind of resonated with me, his reference there. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think it's certainly a really interesting angle to take with this character. Um, and like, I think you're right. It might be the case where he's affecting, like, a more sophisticated accent than the one he was, like, born to and had when he was a younger man. And I think they might actually try to show that through the flashbacks. I, I might be having too high expectations, but we already know that we're going to see Krennic as a younger man when he's facing off against Galen Erso when Jin is a child. So I kind of wonder if they're going to 
have him be a bit more like earthy and made with like a yokel accent. Do you know what this is reminding me of? What? Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) You know, like, you know, leaving the working class roots behind and pretending to be posh to say power. Like, that's that's what this seems like. And I think you're right with flashbacks. That would probably be like the best way to illustrate that, right? Like, just have him have a bit of a commoner accent in the earlier stages where he's like, meeting Mads Mikkelsen's character or whatever he's doing mm-hmm. and then by the time you have him in the, the fancy white cape he's you know putting on airs and <laughs> trying to match Vader yeah no definitely I think now with this piece of information I'm really seeing all that like swish cape and all the arrogance that's all like a performance mm-hmm. that's him putting on the show like presumably to compensate for this like sense of inadequacy like, he knows that he came from very low origins. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. That's what that cape looked like when we first saw that teaser. Yeah. How that is really ostentatious. Mm. You know, if you compare him to someone like Hux, who, sure, like, presents himself carefully and is sharply tailored and all that, but probably doesn't feel the need to prove himself with that swishy cape in the same way. That's actually a really interesting point of comparison with Hux, because Hux, through the expanded universe... We know that he came from a very sordid past as well because he's like the child of an illicit affair apparently between his father who was like a high up imperial and then like a woman who was literally referred to as a kitchen servant. (laughs) So he had very much that humble origins. So I do think that Hux, much like Krennic, he's another character who's performing and trying to put on a show somewhat. Um... So, yeah, it's interesting. I, I very much doubt that Gareth Edwards is thinking, hmm, I want to make Krennic like Hux. I doubt that ever entered their minds. But I find it kind of interesting that there's that theme of overcoming your origins and then being really bad. <laughs> so not doing it in an illustrious way. I guess they're almost like the, like the opposite to what people like Ray and Luke are, because they come from very lowly, humble origins as well. But then they go up to Grace and they become heroes. And then people like Krennic and Hux, they come from very lowly origins, but it seems like it gives them a massive, like, inadequacy complex and causes them to go completely the the other direction. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I like this extra detail about Krennic. I feel like that you really start to understand a bit more about where he's coming from. Absolutely, yeah. That's very much how I feel. Right, and then we can move on. And we have some episode 8 bits. And we have Daisy Ridley speaking with the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast, which is a podcast on MTV. And basically Daisy was talking about her new movie, The Eagle Huntress, which she's promoting. She did the voiceover and was also a producer. Um, But obviously, as always, she got asked some Star Wars questions. And she made some pretty cool comments, which I thought would be good to summarise. And the summarised version goes thusly. The Mary Sue thing I just didn't get because it wasn't true. For the most part, when someone's being mean, it's irrational and doesn't make sense. The Mary Sue thing itself is sexist. I think Ray is incredibly vulnerable and nothing she's doing is for the greater good. She's just doing what she thinks is the right thing. And she doesn't want to do some of it, just feels compelled to. So did you listen to the podcast, Kirsty? I did. I thought it was so great. I love Daisy. I always love her interviews. She's so charismatic and charming. Um, but I just, yeah, I 
she probably gets really tired of answering Star Wars questions when she's trying to promote something else. Yeah, no, I feel so sorry for her. Like, it must be the bane of all their lives, to be honest, like, all of the young actors. Because, I hate to say it, but her new movie looks lovely, and I'd really like to watch it if it gets over here in the UK. Um, but it's almost like people don't really want to talk about that. They only really want to talk about Star Wars. And that's a shame, but I suppose that her movie does get publicity, like, off the back of that. So even though this headline will be Daisy Ridley says X about episode eight, they will also mention the other film in the story. So it's not all bad. Yeah, I think that's just the way it goes, right? These other films will benefit from that exposure, but it must be a little bit frustrating in the meantime. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's very much the case. Um, I Also, one thing that quote was essentially an abbrevi- a very highly abbreviated, compressed version of what she actually said. Um, and it removed a lot of, like, um and ah in exactly what I do. <laughs> um, but she also said some other really cool things. She said that she really likes Mulan, which is awesome. And she cited that as an example for, like, an empowering movie she saw as a young woman. I've mentioned uh, Mulan before, I think. Yeah. Um, no, she's got these, like, movies she watched when she was a kid. Like, so I think Matilda was another one. And she's always bringing them up. They clearly were quite formative for her. Yeah. Mulan one of my favourite Disney films. So. Yeah, no, I love it. Like, um, oh, I remember now. She was saying um, she'd listen to I'll Make a Man Out of You. To, like, yeah. pump herself up when she was, like, getting ready for scenes. <laughs> which song. I think is awesome. That song, and I love the bit during the movie when it's playing when mm. they're doing the, the training montage yes it's so good <laughs> if Ray gets the training montage in episode 8 I'd love to see it be a homage to that okay. yeah. epic <laughs> um I really liked what Daisy had to say about the whole Mary Sue nonsense because I hate that that makes me so angry the way the way that that became such a big deal about Ray supposedly being this like self insert Mary Sue character and it's really nice to see her like hitting back at that and just being completely baffled by it. Because yeah. it that's all it deserves. It deserves her being like, what the hell? This is just so stupid. I just think it's really funny. It, it's Star Wars. Anakin, I don't know what the male equivalent is. Is it like Gary Sue or something? It's Gary Stew. Oh my god. Anakin is the biggest one of all. He's literally the chosen one. Like, when he's nine years old, he saves everyone by accidentally going off into that X-Wing or whatever. Like, it's just... Don't forget that he was immaculately conceived. Exactly. Like, virgin birth. He's like, he's Jesus, basically. Right? So, I, was, I cannot take anyone seriously if they're saying that about Ray because this is Star Wars. Like, the, the hero is supposed to have these larger-than-life abilities... But they actually went through great pains to explain where Rey got all of her powers from, and they did not do the same with Luke and Anakin. Mm-hmm. So they actually overstepped it because she's a woman, and they knew they were going to get backlash, and they got it anyway. Yeah, it makes me so angry. It's such a double standard. It's like, like you say, it's purely because she's a woman. If it was a guy doing exactly the same things and demonstrating exactly the same powers, I guarantee no one would be noticing at all. No one would call that character Gary Stu. Just like no one calls Luke Skywalker Gary Stu. It is pure sexism. And I also really liked that Daisy pointed out that Ray isn't like this all-powerful, like all-confident, like heroine. Like she did point out that Ray is actually really quite vulnerable and that she's kind of just 
being swept along on this adventure like not always even wanting to do these things just because she feels compelled to do them and i think that's a really good point because i think for me like a mary sue character there's someone who like immediately like jumps into the action they're always like self-assured they're always confident and they always know what they're doing and that's not ray at all she's like bewildered by what's happening to her and she's like i don't understand this is really freaky and weird i don't like it um and yeah i find that really empathetic and i think that's one of the best elements of the character but that's conveniently ignored for these ridiculous claims and yeah it's just stupid yeah i think a lot of it has to do with uh beating the evil dark guy at the end Mm. and you and I obviously have our theories as to how that happened and why, but yeah. it's just, it really is like, oh, well, how did the girl beat him? Like, that's so impossible. So, yeah, no, it's just, I, ah, internet discourse drives me mad. Um, another nice little bit that I haven't seen mentioned too much is that Daisy mentioned that she had spoken to Adam, so Adam Driver, um, about her audition for Murder on the Orient Express. Um, and I found that like just on a personal level i think that's really nice because it shows that she's going to him for advice that they're like presumably comfortable enough with each other to have those conversations about work and i think that's really cool but like i'm I'm probably reading way too much into it but it did kind of remind me about how at every opportunity in the episode seven publicity daisy was like name dropping john Baker like mad like she was always mentioning her and john doing stuff her and john talking to each other and Obviously, that was a lot because Daisy and John spent so much time together on the episode seven set and they became really close and their characters were pivotal to each other's stories. And like I say, I think it's probably the conspiracy theorist in me, but I do kind of wonder if this is something we're going to see more in the run up to episode eight. Like with Daisy, maybe like more indicating that she's shown more time with Adam in terms of the filming now. Yeah, I don't think you're being a conspiracy theorist. Um, I think that makes sense based on where the stories seem to be going mm. they would have more scenes together and she would have less with um, John yeah so yeah we'll see if that we get more and more of those statements but it you know seemed to make sense yeah no definitely I think it will be a case of like cumulative evidence <laughs> so we will see what happens down the line um and then there were a few other things she said Um, The interviewer basically mentioned to Daisy that he had heard that there were going to be quite a few other female characters in episode 8. And Daisy's response to that was, hell yeah! Um, Kind of in that tone. And it was awesome to hear her so enthusiastic. Um, And then she went on to mention Kenny Marie Tran. And she said that Kenny Marie Tran has a crucial role. Which I really, really liked because I've seen lots of like attempts to brush his character under the carpet and kind of like to downplay her as like maybe she's just going to be Finn's love interest she's not going to be that important she's just going to be a side character and so I'm quite excited by the idea of her actually being really important to the story and having a big role to play yeah I mean a few fans might be saying that she's not going to be that important but it doesn't really matter what fans say um everyone involved with production has been saying that she is really important so Oh yeah, no, totally. Um, it, this is all very much like niche Star Wars message boards. <laughs> so when I say lots of people, I, I generally mean just like a few loud people who are vocal about their opinions. Um, so yeah, I'm sure there's going to be much more positivity and enthusiasm about Kelly than there is negativity. 
Um, and it's just really nice to see the new cast doing such a good job of like cheerleading her and like welcoming her in. Yeah, I I can't wait for them to formally announce who her character is going to be, mm. because then it really does allow the speculation to start going. Because like you say, people are like trying to work out where she will fit into the story. Um, we've heard a few spoilers, but um, it's just like, oh yeah, you know, is she going to be this? Is she going to be that? Is she going to be like say Finn's love interest? We don't know, but it's driving everyone insane in the meantime. So. Um, there was another comment that was made, and that was about Ray going on a big journey over the course of episode eight. Um, obviously, that's really vague. That doesn't tell us much. But I, I did find it interesting, especially the way Daisy phrased it. She was quite coy. I, I kind of wonder whether she means physical journey, emotional journey like psychic journey <laughs> so we've had like rumors about these like crazy force visions and stuff like nothing concrete nothing that would warrant a spoiler warning in my opinion um but yeah there's just all these suggestions about the fact that the journey ray goes on in episode eight might not be an obvious kind of journey if that makes sense did you read much into that comment or do you think it's just too vague no i mean it makes sense and I think it's probably good for her to start preparing fans who might be attached to how Rey was in The Force Awakens because as a hero she's not going to stay stagnant and that might seem obvious but it's probably good to emphasise and she said in previous interviews that sh- that Rey could be emotionally injured so it does start you wondering what that's going to be and what kind of journey she'll be taking and it sounds to me like it could be more of a spiritual emotional type journey rather than just a physical one yeah, no, that's definitely the impression I get as well. Like, like based on what we've been hearing, I'm not sure I see Ray going on like a grand quest, like all with like complete with MacGuffin, as she did in episode seven. Um, so I do think it's probably going to be more like a metaphysical journey, like one like about her changing as a person and her learning things that alter who she is, and and who she understands herself to be. But we will see. <laughs> um, right. Um, have you said everything you'd like to say about that, Kirsty? Yeah, thank you. Right. And um, we have another story, which is that there is some new Stormtrooper information via Making Star Wars, who are perhaps the most reliable source of spoilers for Star Wars. So obviously, if you're afraid of spoilers, please skip this bit. Maybe jump forward by about five minutes, then you should be safe. Right. And the story, or at least my abbreviated summation of the story, goes thusly. In episode 8, there is a featured stormtrooper that is a force to be feared in the film. I've heard him referred to as the Executioner and other minor variations of that name. He has a matte back black line that goes over half his mask on one side that sets him apart. One rumour of some legs we have heard but cannot confirm is that Finn will go up against the Executioner and this time he doesn't have Han Solo to save him like he did last time. More on Finn's mission very soon. The, the actual report is much longer than that, but I essentially tried to distill it down to its core elements. Um, so what did you make of this, Kirsty? Um, well, it, it's always cool to get more information. Um, this one, I think that these all these different incarnations of stormtroopers, probably on a purely cynical level, but I am very cynical, um, are just kind of about selling toys. Yeah. And I know that's an important part of the business, so that's fine. 
Um, but it does make me wonder how much of a role that Phasma is going to have because she, to me, is the supposedly the big new central stormtrooper antagonist that Finn maybe would be going up against. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering where this guy fits in and whether he's just like one scene, like the the guy was last time who beat Finn. Um, what do you think? I definitely think he's most likely to be a one scene character, and. I'm cynical like you are. So I really do think this is very much about selling toys. I doubt this character is going to have a big emotional journey in episode 8. Because God knows we already have lots of characters who need to have big emotional journeys. Um, So I think he's probably just going to be there for like a one scene battle with Finn. And then he's going to be one and done. He's just going to be gone from the picture. Um, And there's nothing wrong with that. It just so happens that this kind of character is like the least interesting element of Star Wars as far as I'm concerned. So I, I, I sound like such a brat because I sound so ungrateful. I keep on saying, oh, we don't have enough spoilers. Oh, I want more spoilers. And then we get a spoiler and I'm like, not this kind of spoiler. Nah. <laughs> but I, I just can't help but be like honest. It's like, oh, I need more story-oriented spoilers. I don't care about the freaking stormtroopers. Okay, if we read between the lines, and maybe this is just a case of me going too far into it and just guessing. (laughs) He says that um, Finn will go up against him, and this time he doesn't have Han Solo to save him. Um, That that means that Finn is probably going to be the winner in this confrontation, right? I'd really like to think so at this point, because, like, the character has got, like, a lot of shit from some people on the internet, like, saying that he didn't hold his own enough and that he wasn't... (sighs) like successful enough i suppose in his battles and you can kind of see that because a lot of the time he does have to have other people come in like so like when han comes in and shoots the guy the bowcaster at the last minute and i really would quite like to see finn actually take the initiative and just decidedly beat like a similar character in episode eight um like purely off his own strength and off his own back so i think that that would be a good way to show growth for finn and like yeah. show how far he's come since last time. So I I really like Finn, but obviously they are going to need to show him developing and improving as a warrior. And I think this kind of scenario would be a good way to illustrate that. Yeah, that fits with the spoiler we heard a few weeks ago about him kind of being healed with the back to suit and then being better than ever, I think was how they described it. Yeah. So yeah, that was he has kind of gone on that arc from someone who didn't necessarily think of himself as a hero was just kind of motivated by self-interest and fear and then has progressed to become this big deal in their resistance and is much more capable and confident in himself now. So yeah, it's going to be exciting to see that. Um, I just, I'm kind of done with internet crybabies of all persuasions. Mm. So yeah, there might be a few people complaining about Finn, but I don't think the point of his character was to appear competent at all times that's not that's not what storytelling is about. He doesn't have to be flawless and always winning every confrontation to be an interesting character or on a journey. Yeah, no, that's pretty much how I feel. It's kind of like the most boring characters are the characters who get everything right all the time. Like if Finn had been like flawless in everything he did and had never made any mistakes and had never needed help from anyone else, in my opinion, he wouldn't be much of a character. That's just really dull to me. 
So I do think it's much more interesting to handle it as they've handled it and show him as someone who is very much fallible and he can fail. But at the same time, he's incredibly brave and he's got lots of potential to grow and do incredible things as he comes into his own more. And I do think episode eight is going to see him coming into his own more. And like it's quite speculative, but I think this character that making styles are describing, I think his most likely purpose is just to serve as a tool for Finn's development. And I think that's a good purpose because... Like, I don't care about the Stormtrooper much, but if he helps Finn along his journey, then it feels more worthwhile to me. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also it's... like that we've been promised more info on Finn's mission soon, because that's yeah. the kind of stuff I'm craving. I want to know, like, what the hell is Finn doing? Like, what is he looking for? What is this mission? And so it's reassuring to think that making Star Wars will hopefully be providing us with said information soon. Yeah, I'm really interested to learn that too because the whole thing like we said in um, episode 7 was him feeling like he has nothing to fight for mm. so now that he's decided is worth his time and dedicating his life to yeah no definitely um oh and there was also like a few other snippets in the story and um, one of the other things that Jason mentioned was that they're bringing back the like red guards that they had in Return of the Jedi guarding the Emperor um and they've like had some modifications and stuff as well to look a bit different. Um and and that just kind of made me ask some like weird questions. It's like, okay, so is Snoke using the Imperial Guards again? Like, it just doesn't strike me as a particularly snoky thing to do. <laughs> yeah. But then can you imagine anyone else doing that? Unless like somehow that's been taken over by the Republic, but I I don't know. I mean, it is kind of odd to me that the First Order are supposedly different from the Empire and yet use stormtroopers, supposedly use these guards, or we're mm. assuming that they might. Um, are they supposed to be a different beast entirely or are they just kind of coming in and taking on that same role? I get the impression that they're very nostalgic. Like a lot of these people are the children of former Imperials, for example, and like, oh, back in the good old days when Emperor Palpatine was sat on the throne ruling the galaxy of an iron fist. It's like that kind of attitude i think um presumably about the old croaky voices though because virtually everyone in the first order looks like they're 30 and under <laughs> um but yeah there's like lots of nostalgia and like idolization of the past so i can kind of justify it from that point of view but at the same time i can't help but feel it's also a bit pandering to like just re-establish that world of like all these familiar visual tropes because they know people like them and they know people associate them with styles. So I am really hoping that this is like all just misleading and these are all going to be very small elements of the film and that they're not going to distract me too much because my main interest in episode eight is getting this weird different styles movie that we've been promised. Yeah, I still think that's the case, but like you say. They're going to have to have these smaller elements just to make people think, oh, yes, this is the Star Wars universe that I recognise. Um, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and uh, one one last thing is I found it interesting that, for, like, basically over the last few weeks, you've been getting lots of, like, small tidbits about Episode Eight for making Star Wars. And all of them have been, like, about Finn and that side of the story. And I, I just find it interesting that there's been, like, a complete absence of any like information like even really small information 
about Ray and Kylo and Luke in that thread of the story. Um, and I, I do kind of wonder whether that's because the information doesn't exist or because that information is potentially more juicy and so it's been held back until after Rogue One when it's the more appropriate time to let those kind of details come out. Yeah, I think they know that most Star Wars fans are more interested in the Force side of the story, um, which isn't to say one's going to be better than the other. Um, I also, because the Force will be kind of like this more metaphysical idea, it might be harder to piece together what the story actually is there. Whereas if Finn's on these missions, on the resistance side of things, that might be easier to work out what he's doing and why. That would be more like the action side. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point. Um, I think whatever's going on with Rey and Kylo and Luke is more likely to be weird and trippy. And I think that would also mean that a lot of it's going to involve, like, the... like It's more likely to involve CGI. I think for a start, if they are going to get very metaphysical with things, because presumably that's going to involve some vaguely psychedelic and unrealistic visions, which would require CGI augmentation. So there's the question of how much of that would have been done physically on sets that the kind of people that Jason uses as his sources would have access to. So, yeah, all kinds of questions. And yeah, this is terrible conspiracy theory wrote at this point. It's like the truth is out there. That's what Star Wars fans do. That's part of the fun. So just embrace it. Yeah. No, exactly. It's like picks and truffles. <laughs> okay. Right. I think that's the news done. And with that said, we can move into our spotlight section. And this one I'm actually quite excited about because it's an angle of Star Wars that I certainly think is important. And I also think Kirsty thinks is important. Um, but you probably don't automatically associate styles with it because styles is generally thought of as being science fiction and people think of the spaceships and the flashbang effects and all that good stuff. And it is very much good stuff. But this time we're actually going to be talking about love and romance and styles and basically having like a whistle stop tour of how those themes, like the more emotional, mushy stuff, essentially have been dealt with in each trilogy and also diving into a little bit of speculation about what we think that might say for episode eight. So we're going to do this chronologically in terms of the order that the films are set. So we will begin with the prequel trilogy and that obviously features the Padme and Anakin romance and it's quite an interesting beast because it's very like high octane, I suppose. It's all like this tragic, passionate love affair that ends in complete disaster. Um, and yeah, Kirsty, I was just wondering what your thoughts on it, like from a thematic point of view, like how does it strike you? Um, I have very mixed feelings about Annie Darla. <laughs> <laughs> I love these shipping the, man the shipping They're so silly, but I love them. Yeah, that'd probably be the last time I say that today. But, um, <laughs> Because I I love certain aspects. Um, I don't love the execution all the time. But um, I I like, in terms of the prequels, I kind of like that melodramatic feel. Um, I like that Padme's always dressed in these beautiful outfits and it, yeah, it feels yeah. almost like a period drama. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think sometimes when people like make fun of the cringy dialogue or, you know, like I hate sand, I think that's intentional. I think you're not supposed to think of Anakin as this smooth ladies man. I think that's the point. He's not supposed to know what to say. He's all flustered because he's around this woman who he thinks is the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And, you know, he just doesn't know what to say. So that's his like weird attempt at seduction. And obviously it works over time, but it's almost like in spite of that. Yeah, no, that I find that one of the more amusing things is the Padme Anakin romance, obviously the dialogue is quite special. But like you say, it's really not worth going into that in any great depth because that's basically been riffed on to death at this point. And there's not much else to say beyond it's not very convincing seduction dialogue. <laughs> um, I kind of but, love that aspect to it, though, because you need to have this smooth talker. I know we're going to get onto the original trilogy later and Han Solo maybe fits into that role a bit more. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you're su- it's not supposed to roll out like, oh, Padme just couldn't resist Anakin's charm. It's more like almost this fated, destined love. Like, they're star-crossed lovers, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely, because... Obviously, Anakin, he's literally a teenage boy when they're having this romance in Attack of the Clones. I think he's 19. Um, And it shows he is very much a teenage boy and that he's highly hormonal. He says all the wrong things and he's creepy and desperate for sex. (laughs) That's very crude. But I do think that kind of sums up Anakin in relation to Padme. Um, And I do think you're right. That's kind of the only way you can really reconcile that romance like you have to see it as something that's fated and something that was written in the stars um which i think is kind of what their musical theme is named after (laughs) um and yeah because it doesn't really make much sense on like a pure human level because like you say anakin's pickup lines would not work on any normal human woman Uh, but yeah, at the at the end of the, at the end of the day, the point of their romance is not really how it develops. The point is more how it ends. I think that's the most interesting and defining aspect of that relationship, in my opinion. Like when you see that relationship fall apart, and that's kind of where it becomes more powerful for me because you see these people who are obviously deeply in love, even at the very end of everything. But for various reasons beyond their control, they've just gone completely separate ways. And there's no way back for them. There's no way they can like be together again. And that's what the whole point of that final scene with them in Revenge of the Sith is about. And again, I think it probably could have been handled better from an execution standpoint. But I do feel think, still think it's quite powerful seeing these two people who you know are in love and you know mean a great deal to each other. And you just know they can never be together again. There's just too much happened that is driven like wedges between them. And they have completely different perspectives on everything at that point. So there's just like this ir- irreconcilable divide. And it's quite tragic. Um, I suppose with the Anadala romance, another thing to mention is that it's very much about these two characters who come from extremely different backgrounds. So you have Anakin, who is a slave boy, and then you have Padme, who's literally a queen. So (laughs) it's like the most extreme 
expanse between them you could almost possibly envisage. Um, and yeah, I think, again, that's very much about adding to that star-crossed element and creating all these odds against the relationship, which are stacked up even further in Attack of the Clones, because by that point, Anakin is a Jedi and he's not meant to have any attachments. Obviously, doesn't jive well with falling in love with this beautiful girl. <laughs> um, in love, which is you know a very well-known trope, because mm. it provides tons of angst in a very easy way, um, and they have to yeah hide their marriage from people, people who are really close to them. Like I, I did always wonder if Obi Wan Kenobi knew and just didn't say anything, but oh, I think he knew. Um, like it's kind of like that look he gives Padme when they're like talking towards the end of Revenge of the Sith. I, I think if he didn't know, I think he heavily oh. suspected. Oh yeah, towards the end, he definitely knows because he he works out who you know. Oh, you're pregnant, and <laughs> who else is it going to be? Immaculately conceived. But yeah, Anakin having to hide that from Obi Wan, who you know he's like his brother. Mm. You know, you can't imagine how difficult that must have been. And then he has all these visions and dreams about his wife dying. And doesn't feel like he can turn to anyone. So that's kind of how he gets seduced by Palpatine. Yeah, I think if you look at the prequel trilogy as like a statement on what happens when you have this like passionate, intense love for someone, it's actually like a very negative statement on that kind of love because it's ultimately shown to be horribly destructive for both of them. Like Padme literally dies <laughs> and Anakin, like he almost dies essentially he dies in virtually all the ways that matter so he basically becomes this machine man and he loses like all his humanity and like all his like emotions and like the things that really made him a good person they're all eradicated when he's burnt to a crisp um and in many ways that decline is driven by anakin's love because anakin's love and concern for padme are what essentially drive him to make the steel with the devil in like committing himself to Palpatine and the dark side. But obviously it's a really cruel lesson because he doesn't save her. He, he probably ends up killing her by making that decision. So there's this grand irony at the centre of it. Yeah, it's not just about their love. It's also like the, the Jedi attitude towards that. The idea that you shouldn't have compassion and attachment for people and then it kind of illustrates the Jedi's failure mm -hmm. at understanding humanity and how people will fall in love. And, you know, you can't always account for that. And there is this theft in love between them. Um, and it's all about how the people around them kind of get in the way. And, and it just becomes a downfall for both of them. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I, I think that one of the most interesting things the prequels do is essentially question where the Jedi went wrong on an institutional level. They clearly went wrong in very big ways. Um, and that whole attitude about like love and attachments is clearly the, one of the biggest mistakes conceivable. And it does make me wonder how did the Jedi survive so long? So presumably they've been around for like thousands of years and there must have been big, big problems with this before. Like, because these Jedi, they're not they can't all be monks. They have to have some kind of sex drive. And like, what happened? Well, I don't think that it's sex that's forbidden. It's the attachment. Yeah, but I suppose the thing is that like, sex and attachment, they're often heavily interlinked. 
right and it's a children's movie so it's not like they're going to go into too, too much detail. <laughs> exactly like mace windu go down to the brothel like <laughs> i don't think it's gonna happen <laughs> yeah yeah getting on with some twilights <laughs> nice um is there anything else you'd like to say about the prequels in respect of romance and love kirsty this might get a bit weird, but um, I thought in the past that Anakin's attitude towards Padme is almost like a way to compensate for the relationship he loses with his mother. Mm. So That's almost, a really good point. Yeah, it almost has this mother-son dynamic, which is icky for these reasons. But he does kind of imprint on her and then holds her up to this on this pedestal. And then, you know, the minute she questions him and says he's going against what she holds strong, it's like he turns against her. And I know that he's fallen to the dark side at that point, so that's obviously clouding his judgment, but I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really good observation. Um, And they do actually draw, I think, an overt parallel to that because they have Anakin think back to when he had those premonitions of his mother dying. In Attack of the Clones, they like draw a parallel between that and when he has the premonition of Padme dying in childbirth. So it is almost like he's transposed all that like love and fear and anxiety for his mother onto Padme, which is obviously quite a heady cocktail of emotion. And it leads to very bad things. Um, and it's probably also worth mentioning that Padme is older than Anakin. I think she's like four or five years older. Um, so that almost like automatically creates more of like a maternal dynamic there because she is older than him so she is like in a position of authority relative to him yeah she's older and she also seems a lot more emotionally mature yeah i mean her when she's 14 and she's a queen ruling a planet so you know even when we meet him at 19 he's had nowhere near that level of responsibility yeah no exactly i i think anakin he's still very much like a child which again, I think is one of the problems I have for like buying them getting together because she is so sophisticated and so mature, and it's like, what do you see in him? I, I can't help but think it's probably just because he's really, really hot. <laughs> and I-, I do seriously think a lot of it is like about pure physical attraction, which, which is fine. That happens a lot in real life too, um, but that's just a bit frustrating to me that there's not like more substance to that draw to each other yeah i mean you can kind of see this conflict within her you know he's trying to pursue her and she's saying no like this um you know this goes against what i stand for it's not permitted you're a jedi Mm -hmm. Um, but you can also feel her attraction towards him and she starts wearing these revealing outfits around (laughs) him you shouldn't be you know it's like so so you know maybe in her head, she's thinking, no, this is actually a really bad idea. So she's almost like got these alarm bells going off, but she just can't help herself. Like she's drawn to him. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And that goes back to that whole sense of it being fated and inevitable. Like there was no way they were going to stop this train. And that's kind of essentially like a meta commentary on the relationship of these characters like just generally, because they literally had to get together because Luke and Leia already exist. Their parents need to fall in love and have children. There were like checkboxes to tick off. <laughs> um, so it had to happen. It was fated in that respect. Um, as well as fated in 
in universe. Um, yeah, I suppose the only other thing I'd like to say about Anadala is very much about how it was received because obviously a lot of people have problems with the prequels. I don't think I'm surprised at anyone in making that comment. Um, and I think one of the areas of the prequels that comes under especially intense criticism is the romance for quite a few of the reasons we've touched upon here. Um, and I do actually see quite a lot of resistance just to the whole concept of romance in Star Wars. There are a lot of people citing that Anakin and Padme romance is the reason why they don't want to see like a big focus on like a love story going forward. And I find that quite interesting because it kind of indicates to me how short-sighted some people are being. Because it's like, even if you didn't like this love story, what's to say you wouldn't like a love story if it was actually done really well and was compelling and was properly woven into the narrative? Right. I mean, I find it pretty funny because Star Wars is a generational saga. Mm. So future babies have to come from somewhere. Yes put it bluntly um so and aside from that you know you have a commercial demand for it too because not everyone watches star wars for the same reasons um you know some people watch it for the romances some people's favorite part of the prequels might have been anakin and padme's relationship yeah no exactly there's a lot of interest in anadala there's lots of anadala fan arts and fan fiction and that's really cool there are lots of fans and like you say, I think it's really important that people remember that there is a whole demographic that are drawn to like more romantic and emotional stories without necessarily caring that much like about spaceships and laser fights. And that's absolutely okay, and that's fine. Because at the end of the day, Star Wars is about people. It's about humans, or at least people who look very much like humans. <laughs> and we want to see them interact. We want to see them form relationships. And those relationships will sometimes be romantic. And I think that's a really good thing because, like, it's more honest that way. And I think it also creates higher stakes and higher emotional investment in a way you don't get if they're... If it's just, like, a world sub scrubbed clean of, like, emotions and romance and sex. Like, and I, I do sometimes see that impulse where they just don't want any of that, like, mushy emotions in Star Wars. And it's like, the Star Wars is so much about mushy emotions. <laughs> it's like, you know, we were saying last week, it's mythology and fairy tale. There is this, you know, grand overarching idea of compassion and love and affection mm. between people. And the, this idea that love conquers all. Yeah. No, totally. And it, you know, that can be productive or destructive, like we see with Annie Darla. Um, <laughs> I'll never get over that. <laughs> but yeah, like love is the driving force in that story, for better or worse. So you you know, on a personal level, someone might not appreciate that particular story, but then to say that therefore there shouldn't be a romance necessarily in the sequel trilogy just doesn't really make sense because it, it's not the same people directing or writing. It's not the same actors. It's a bit strange. Yeah, I think some people just have an aversion to romance flat up. It's a shame, but still, we will see. Um, and on that note, we can move on to the original trilogy. And in the original trilogy, I think it's interesting because I think there's two really prominent types of love on display. And I think you obviously have Han and Leia, who are the central romantic couple of that trilogy. 
and they obviously have this really nice sparky feisty dynamic which is awesome and they have these great lines and these this great chemistry like i love you i know like it's so good um and then alongside that you also have familial love so luke's love for his father and i kind of think that that's probably the most important and transformative love in the original trilogy um but yeah what do you think kirsty what do you make of how the original trilogy treats these subjects uh like you say there are these two different strands of love woven into the story and very different types of love and one is obviously crucial to the hero and villain dynamic and the other one is more of a is treated more like a side plot but is very crucial to those characters arcs um you really see leia and han go on journeys and develop as a result of their interactions with each other um, and I absolutely love their romance. It's one of my favourites of all time. I showed you a video the other day of Carrie Fisher and, and Harrison Ford talking about the romance from years ago. Yeah. And Carrie was, you know, saying that it was kind of in the vein of um, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, like constantly sniping at each other and almost like yelling and hitting each other and then just completely falling for each other. Mm. And I just love that kind of story. Yeah, same. Like, I love that. And that appeals to me much more than, like, a soppy, like, oh, I love you. I love you, too. Oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, you're so handsome. Like, that kind of thing. Um, it's much more fun to have, like, these two characters who, like, are, like, button heads, so to speak. But then they realise that they actually really care about each other. And ultimately, they do anything for each other, which is what Han and Leia is about and there's just so much passion and feeling there in that relationship and I think it really comes through and obviously it helps a lot that Carrie and Harrison have fantastic chemistry with each other um that's always a bonus (laughs) in the on-screen romances um and yeah I love the interview that you showed me with Carrie and Harrison I'll have to link that in the notes um and I really, really liked Carrie relating it back to all those classic movie romances. So I think there's like this bad rep that old cinema gets, like about all being very like superficial and like having demeaning roles for women and so on. But if you look back to a lot of those movies from the 40s and 50s, they have fantastic female characters and they have really like awesome, sparky, lively romances. Like you got you got really soppy and stupid ones as well, but I think it's like Carrie said, those like Catherine Hepburn, but like Betty Davis movies, like there's just something so cool about those women and the kinds of relationships they're given. Like you always feel that these characters are equal, and they're like very different, but they complement each other really well, and they have these great back and forths, and that's what Han and Leia is to me, and I think they're awesome. They make a great couple. Yeah, it's really about that witty dialogue and this idea that they're falling in love in spite of themselves. Like, it's almost against their will. They're they're trying desperately to deny it. And Han, you know, pursues her, but still in this very, I know that you care about me way, like very aggressive, but it's like, admit how you feel. It's just very funny to watch. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm not quite sure you'd see romance handled in quite the same way now in 2016 but I love that Hanley romance and like you say it is the whole fall in love despite yourself thing 
And I think, again, like Anadala, you have this whole idea of these two people like falling in love despite coming together across a huge divide because Leia is a princess. Leia is very focused on the rebellion and doing the right thing. She's highly principled and moral. Whereas Han is this smuggler who's out for himself. He's quite selfish. And he basically just wants to make a quick bug. Um, which is why he takes on Luke and Obi-Wan in the first place. Um, but despite their differences, you gradually see them coming together and you also see their goals start to become more similar as well. So by the end of Return of the Jedi, like Han, he's not that selfish smuggler anymore. He's a general in the Rebellion and he's there fighting the good fight. He's not like driven by self-interest anymore. He's very firmly in love with Leia and he's embedded in that hierarchy, um, which is like it. And I know quite a few people have been like disappointed by what happened to Han in Return of the Jedi. They felt that it kind of like neutered him and made him a less interesting character because he did almost become more of a straightforward hero in that respect. But it, while that's true, I also think it's a natural progression for that character to show him getting over those like lowly, like roguish origins and becoming actually part of something that matters and also probably falling in love and as we would later learn, getting married getting married and having a child. Yeah, I always feel like that criticism of Han Solo and Return of the Jedi has a lot to do with the notion of masculinity and how love would change a man and somehow weaken him or mm. have him stop being himself because Han does go on a journey but it's kind of a classic anti-hero journey it's you know it's pretty conventional um but yeah I mean I know a lot of people attach this idea to Han Solo as someone who would be an eternal rogue but that's just not how he is in that movie and I know you you know in The Force Awakens they him and Leia both have that bit of regression, but it's as a result of their grief over losing their child. And that they say they go back, they went back to the only thing that they were both good at. But before, before that, they must have had this semi-stable family life and had lots of love with each other and for their child. Like, I, I both like the regression in The Force Awakens, and I kind of wish they'd just continued where the characters were in Return of the Jedi. And I so I can understand why some people were frustrated that like they basically tore apart Han and Leia's lives for the sake of having drama. There is an annoyance in that, and there's also annoyance in seeing them kind of reset to how they were in A New Hope and Empire. Um, but I do also think there are legitimate reasons for that, as you point out. Um, so it wasn't like it was completely arbitrary. Um, but yeah, I think beside the romantic like plot in Empire Strikes Back you obviously also have this other kind of love which is Luke's love for his father which is ultimately a very redemptive and powerful love because it essentially brings Anakin Skywalker back and destroys the Emperor and in doing so saves the whole galaxy so like for something that a lot of people don't consider that important or that integral to Star Wars I, I think love is actually at the core of it all because if Luke did not love his father with that pure, unconditional love, then everything would have gone to shit, <laughs> essentially. 
Yeah, exactly. And it comes back to this idea we were saying last week that it is a fairy tale. It's not particularly realistic for Luke to love his father, A, because he never knew him growing up, and B, because of who his father is and all the awful things he's done. But that's not the point. It is like this love in the face of overwhelming odds that it seems so impossible. That's what makes it powerful. And it is kind of this metaphor that that Luke can recognize Vader as his shadow, accept him, and then that allows him to complete his hero's journey, that he kind of ascends to that godlike status at the end of Return yeah, of the Jedi. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, that is like the integral part of Luke's journey, like being able to like accept this darkness that is part of his history, his family history, and then being able to rise above that and still show compassion, like this incredible, like almost like transcendent compassion like you say, it's not really rooted in realism or any actual relationship he had with his father because he never had a relationship with his father before he like had his hand cut off by him, uh, which is not a great way to meet your dad, um, let's face it. Um, but yeah, the whole point is that it's not about paralleling real relationships or being realistic about how a son should behave when he's reunited with his evil mass murdering father <laughs> like it's about offering that wonderful sense of hope like the kind of hope you get in fairy tales like and reminding people of how powerful that kind of optimism can be and it's essentially one big metaphor but i think it's a really good one and i also find it really interesting because of how different it is in terms of male heroes if you think about male heroes generally they're very much defined by their like strength and their stoicism and their ability to like resist like emotions and stuff but with luke he is very much like an emotional hero he is heroic precisely because he does feel love and he does feel compassion and i think that's a really really cool element of those films and it's actually really quite progressive and subversive like to have this male hero who he doesn't win by being active or violent, as you might expect. He wins by essentially being passive and throwing away his weapon and saying, no, I'm not going to fight you. And I really like that. Yeah. I mean, the father and son fairy tale dynamic has like kind of evolved from that traditional idea of mothers and daughters or stepmothers like the evil stepmother, you know, in Cinderella and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So it is like a, a gender subversion of that. But as you say, it's also tied up in these ideas of traditional masculinity and kind of subverting that. Um, Harry Potter is another example, I guess, that, you know, it's that idea of compassion triumphing over something that might on the surface seem more powerful and dangerous, but love heals. Yeah, it definitely It's all very much about this healing love. And I also like the idea that, in the prequels, Darth Vader, he essentially falls for love because he does all the evil things he does because in his deluded mind he believes he's going to save his wife, who he loves dearly. But obviously that brings him ruin. And in the end, it's another kind of love that actually saves him and brings him back. And that's the love of his son for him. And it's also interesting, I think, to say that it's a love that Darth Vader, he doesn't really deserve like he doesn't deserve to be loved by Luke because he's just done such awful, horrible things, including awful, horrible things to Luke directly. But 
nonetheless, he's forgiven and redeemed anyway. Like, it's not about deserving love. It's about getting it and being able to recognise that love and do the right thing when you receive it. Yeah, I think that's really critical, that this idea of redemption and love and forgiveness, it's up to the person who's giving that forgiveness as to whether it should be bestowed. It's not really about writing down everyone's crimes and then putting a pros and cons list together and figuring out how you should feel objectively. That's not how any yeah, of Yeah, exactly. Works. It's this whole idea of you can't like quantify evil and you can't really quantify good. Almost they're, they are moral positions. And like love is very much something that's going to vary from person to person. And there isn't really logic to love. So like you say, you can't like tally up Darth Vader's crimes and then say, oh no, he reached 64 crimes today, that makes him completely vetoed for redemption. Nope, that is not how it works. That's not the point. The point is that his son loves him because his son is a hero and he has learned to put aside all of his hatred, all of his resentments and anger, and he has just learned to focus on the light side, which is all about compassion and forgiveness. And so he can reconcile himself with his father despite everything that's happened. And that's why you get everyone looking nice and cheerful at the end as they're burning Darth Vader's body. Because, like, you did good, kid. You did good. Yeah, I've heard some people say that um, the prequels actually ruined their idea of Vader being redeemed or how likely it was that he could be redeemed because he killed Mm. the younglings. That, to me, makes it more powerful almost because he did do these awful things. Like, that's, you know, it's almost, it's not beside the point, but it makes it more powerful and profound that he can still come back. And it kind of brings it full circle because Padme says there's still light in him. Like, I know he's still a good person and she dies, but it's her son who ends up kind of finishing that story that that he sees that too. Years later, even after he's done even more terrible things, it's still in there. Like, he still has the capacity to be a good person. Yeah, no, I definitely see that. Um, I I can understand both sides, I think, because from a real-world perspective, again, which is the wrong way to look at Star Wars, but some people do look at it from this perspective regardless, like, murdering a room full of small children (laughs) is completely unforgivable. There's no way anyone should be redeemed from that. But again, like you say, I think it's about actually giving more power to the fact that this man who's done these unbelievably evil things that there is still some good left in him like and again it goes back to that like idea about stars ultimately being about optimism and hope because if there could be optimism and hope for someone who did something that awful then there could be optimism and hope for anyone and i think that is a good message to have ultimately like because it's all channeled through this fantasy lens so no one is going to take the messages from stars literally but when you just take the sentiments of them, that, like, even when things seem at their darkest, there is still always that little chink of light, there's still that thing to cling to. Like, that is an important, valuable message. And I'm sure over the years, people watching Star Wars, like, with their own very personal experiences that they're bringing to it, like, I'm sure that message is meant a lot to a lot of people, like, all applying it to their own lives in very different ways. Exactly. It's this idea that, you know, you may have done terrible things in the past, but that doesn't make it too late to change. That can still make a personal decision. Even just like Anakin, you know, he was manipulated almost 
into Fallen to the Dark Side, but it was still his decision. And that meant it was his decision to come back from it as well. So, yeah, the redemption comes from him deciding to take action and feel remorse for what he's done and make a change mm. for the sake of his love that he feels for his son. Um, it's not like maybe people have conflicting ideas about redemption, but I don't, redemption and forgiveness are different things. They might come at the same time. They're not. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I'm looking forward to having a nice, meaty redemption episode down the line. That'll be fun. (laughs) Um, Is there anything else you would like to say about the original trilogy? I don't think so. I think I'm done with that. And also looking at the time, I think I want to keep things snappy and moving along. (laughs) So in that case, we can move on to the sequel trilogy. And this is going to be quite a different discussion because in the sequel trilogy... There isn't really any romance yet. So essentially we need to be much more speculative. Um, But to kind of start this off, I'd like to bring up the Plinkett review of The Force Awakens. Because one of the threads of that that particularly interested me was there was a whole segment that was basically built around criticising The Force Awakens on the basis of there being absolutely no trace of romance, like no trace of sex, and comparing it to the original trilogy, which Plinkett like suggested that much better and had like a much stronger sense of like emotion and sexuality in that regard. And I really don't agree with that. I actually find there's much more like emotion and feeling in The Force Awakens than there is like throughout most of the original trilogy, to be honest. Like how how do you do feel about those comments, Kirsty? Um Yeah, I agree with you, but Yeah, the idea of having an established romance in the first movie of a trilogy doesn't even make sense because you don't get that in The Phantom Menace. And in A New Hope, it still looks like Luke and Leia are going to get together. (laughs) At least, you know, there's a triangle going on. So I wouldn't have expected a full-blown romance in The Force Awakens anyway. Yeah, I was watching the video and I was thinking, what did you want? Did you want, like, two characters to, like, randomly stop banging? (laughs) Like, you're in the (laughs) wrong place. Um, Like, I... Like in all seriousness, I think he meant like he wanted to see more like flirting. He wanted to see like a kiss or something like between Finn and Ray, for example. Um, and I I can't help but think that's like missing the point because like the kisses in the New Hope, for example, completely meaningless. Like like you say, ultimately we know that Leia kissing Luke—that's a sister kissing her brother. So with the benefit of hindsight, there was nothing sexy or romantic about that kiss. Obviously, there was probably meant to be when A New Hope was made because George Lucas had no idea what he was doing when it came to that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, I don't find A New Hope that sexy of, of a film. Certainly no more sexy than The Force, the Force Awakens. Um, and it's kind of like the thing where I think sexuality and romance, they don't need to be obvious to be present. Like, I think there can be those kind of subtexts and undertones without it literally being an in-your-face kiss or, my God, she's beautiful. Like, Luke, when he's looking at the hologram player, there there are more subtle ways of expressing that. And I think that's what The Force Awakens does rather than, like, overtly smushing it in your face that certain characters are sexually attracted to each other, for example. I think the my god she's beautiful thing is almost childlike. I don't I'd never interpreted that as something sexual. It was just like, oh wow, look at this beautiful grey woman. Uh, 
got to go and save her. You know, she's the damsel in distress, even though she's yeah, really that's not. Yeah, how I feel as well. Like it felt like very really, like innocent to me. Like I didn't really pick up on much like a sexual attraction at that point. Maybe plink it just as dirty mind. Well, I think it's good in hindsight, like you say, that there wasn't this real sexual chemistry between Luke and Leia. And um, that's the funny thing, right? So there's this idea that they could have got together, but I I always from the beginning thought that um, Han and Leia had a much more explosive sexual chemistry, even when it wasn't clear that that was what was going yeah, to happen. Yeah, I do sometimes wonder if like, George Lucas maybe noticed that like on set when they were filming like he just saw how much better Carrie and Harrison like gelled together than Carrie and Mark did like maybe and then responded to that when the decision was made about where the romances were going to go if so it was a smart move because it worked really well yeah you need that certain element of conflict to make things interesting in a kind of will they won't they oh they're still trying to hide their feelings from each other way like that's just more interesting to watch on screen in my opinion anyway um yeah, so obviously with Force Awakens, I think the closest thing there is to like any overt seeds of romance, like in the sense that they were saying this is going to be the romantic couple, that's probably Finn and Ray. So I remember watching the trailers, like in the run up to the Force Awakens, and I remember they like showed the clip of Finn taking Ray's hand and them running together, holding hands. And I remember looking at that and thinking, Oh, they're so cute like and thinking I was gonna ship it. And then I actually watched the movie and I didn't interpret that mo- that relationship as romantic. I saw like little like flirty hints and stuff, but I didn't like see any indication that that's going to be where they go moving forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And that obviously has been the prevailing opinion. I come to it from a different perspective because I just always interpreted them as having more of a Luke and Leia dynamic that seemed more sibling-like or strictly platonic. Um, and they, they both have such an innocence about them that when you have these lines that some people have interpreted as romantic, like, oh, do you have a boyfriend, a cute boyfriend? Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I never interpreted that as romantic interest on Finn's part. It just seemed like a funny line to show that he was kind of being a bit invasive and not really realising the social etiquette of what might be appropriate talking to a girl he just met. I do think it's very obviously personal how people see these things. So, like, what if I see like a potential budding romance, like in certain little moments like that? There's no reason why someone else needs to. Um, Like, say, I I kind of got the sense of it was something where there were a few little lines and a few little looks that made me think that might be where they were going, but they were all really early on. And then as the movie went on, and I saw them interacting more, and especially interacting at the end. Like, I didn't see it as romantic at that point at all. Like, especially because they're so pointed with having, like, Ray literally kiss Finn on the head and say, goodbye, my friend. Um, They do kind of hammer home that that's the nature of their relationship now. And I think it's likely that they're going to stay friends. Because if you think about the precedent for romance and stars that we've been talking about, like, the precedent for romance and stars has always been that they're these quite angsty relationships that are overcoming these like big social demands and like boundaries that should stop these people from getting together. Um, and with Ray and Finn, you just don't have that at all because they get on so well and they're like best buddies and they're completely on the level. They 
are very similar in terms of their bubbly personalities, in terms of their innocence. They like get along great as friends, but there's just not really that tension or like that kind of sexual chemistry there that I'd expect to see in a future romantic couple. Like, what do you think about that, Kirsty? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that they could introduce some kind of conflict later on if they wanted them to have a romance. But I don't know why they wouldn't have established that and kept it um, the case throughout the first movie. Because you do kind of have that initial confrontation between them where he lies to her about who he is. And then there's that big confession at Maz's castle. But the way that Ray reacts is kind of anticlimactic. She's not particularly angry with him or feels betrayed. There's not this like passionate exchange between them. Um, and then we've had comments from J.J. Abrams that he said quite openly, um, repeatedly, he said this in the commentary that he's removed this conflicted dynamic between them. That, um, mm. you know, their dialogue and interaction started out a bit more contentious and he actually smoothed that over because it wasn't working. So that to me almost seems like the opposite of, like you say, the, the the typical romantic setups in Star Wars where there is this conflict and angst that they have this something to yeah, overcome. Yeah, no, definitely. I very much agree with that. And I think just in terms of the building blocks they've laid for like the relationships that we have in front of us, like I, I just don't see like romantic building blocks as such laid for Finn and Rey. Like, like you say, might be completely wrong. That might be where they're going. But in terms of what they've done before, in terms of those kind of relationships, it's just not following the pattern. Um, and there are all these rumours of Kelly Marie Tran's character and who she might be, and um, getting into spoiler territory again. <laughs> yes. But that she's going to be spending quite a significant amount of time with Finn. So, you know, you wonder, oh, does that mean that they're going to have a kind of romance? possible that they won't just because she's a female character that doesn't necessarily point that way but it's yeah possible. No, definitely i think that it's quite likely that there is going to be some like crucial relationship between kelly marie trans character and finn just because like they seem to be bigging up those two like as main scene partners in episode eight like i remember kelly wore a finn shirt to star celebration for example which is not subtle bless her but she looked so happy and cool in it. So it was awesome. Um, and yeah, John has obviously been praising Kelly to the high heavens. And Daisy, in the interview we were discussing earlier, made a point of like how big her role is. So I definitely think that she's going to be more than like a love interest. There's going to be much more to her character than that. But I could absolutely see that being like a part of her function in the story. And I also think, like, again, to continue the spoiler theme, consider this, like, a last in spoiler warning, actually, for, like, the next ten or so minutes. Um, like, also, going by what we've heard about Episode Eight, we have the sense that Ray and Kylo are going to be together for much of the time with Luke. And then we also have the sense that Finn and Kelly Marie Tran are going to spend lots of time together. And I can't help but think that keeping Kelly Marie Tran with Finn is going to be about redressing the gender balance because based on The Force Awakens, I think a lot of us thought that Finn was going to spend a lot of time with Poe, for example. But I think the danger, if they had done that, would have been just having that thread of the story become a complete sausage fest. 
So by having Kelly Marie Tran in there, like whether she's a love interest or not, it does kind of balance things out in terms of the genders, um, which I really welcome. Yeah, we had that leaked picture of them both on that space horse, or at least their stunt doubles. Um, and coming back to the idea of Star Wars as a period drama again, like when you see that, it kind of conjures up romantic ideals of them bounding across <laughs> the fields or in you know, epic scenery and it having this almost yeah. romantic feel. As long as they it. don't start talking about sand, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> the not going anywhere near that yeah, no, like it, it's too easy it's such an easy target i should refrain but it is too easy so i go for it um it will be a bit more <laughs> yes no finn finn is a real smooth talker so i think it would come naturally to him um and yeah i guess having spoken about finn and Kelly Marie trans character i suppose like the question is what's going to happen with ray is there going to be any kind of like romance with ray um, and obviously, it's not like there's any obligation for Ray to have romance. Like, and this should, like, we're in no way suggesting that. Like, Luke didn't have romance, and he was the protagonist in the original trilogy, and that was cool and fine. But at the same time, I don't think there's any reason for Ray to not have romance. It shouldn't be the case where, oh, we need to keep this woman strong and independent. She needs to be isolated in an island and be completely self-sufficient. Like, I think that impulse is almost is like dangerous and damaging as the impulse that says all women need to have a man in their lives otherwise they're worthless and have no purpose. Like, they're both like these ridiculous extremes. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, obviously, romance is not essential for a woman's journey, but at the same time, um, she's not just a female Luke. They've not set her up in the same way that they did Luke. Like she's searching for belonging and he he was very different in that aspect. And his primary conflict was, was with his father. So that's obviously a different type of journey. Yeah, no, totally. And I think with Ray, they've made a massive, massive thing of her being so lonely and desperate for her family and like someone to look out for her and love her and care for her. I think it would almost be wrong, like in all, even cruel, to like say to her are you going to be a jedi and you're going to live in like contemplation as you think about the jedi ways like that would be the most like cruel punishment kind of for a girl who's spent her entire life growing up alone on a sand planet and so i just don't get like people saying oh i don't see ray as having a relationship i don't see ray as wanting children and like they're just those kinds of suggestions they just baffle me because they're completely at odds with how I see that character and what I get from her after The Force Awakens. Yeah, same. Um, you know, they they had this idea in the prequels that Jedi, you know, forbid attachments. We obviously know that that didn't go very well. But Anakin had those attachments from the start. He was obviously very attached to his mother. And then he became very attached to Padme. And Rey, on the other hand, didn't have any attachments it has to almost go the other way for her to have a journey with change. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think Ray's story is going to be about her developing attachments and then those attachments being tested and challenged based on the subsequent events. So like in Force Awakens, for example, she develops like deep attachments to Finn and Han. And obviously that attachment to Finn is very powerful. 
like because by the end of the film like Finn and Rey are literally fighting Kylo Ren to save each other um, and the attachment to Han like she obviously sees him as like a surrogate father kind of figure as Kylo points out um, and then that makes her response when she sees him struck down in front of her all the more like emotional and like profound for her. So we can see that she is this kind of person who forms these deep, significant attachments very quickly. Um, and I see no reason why that's not going to continue going forward. Um, and I suppose to go back into episode eight spoiler territory to an extent is we've been hearing lots of interesting things about this island that Ray and Luke are on. And perhaps the most interesting is that Kylo and the Knights of Ren apparently turn up and then they engage Ray and Luke in battle. And my feeling on this is that it's very unlikely that this is a scene that happens towards the end of the film. Because if it does, then it means the whole film for Ray is her stuck on an island an old man and that's literally it and I'm sure Ryan Johnson can do lots of cool and interesting things with like freaky force visions and so on to like spice things up and to make it more dynamic but I strongly strongly doubt that Luke is going to be the only other like character who is present in her story in a big way so my feeling is that Kylo and the Knights of Ren they have to turn up relatively early my guess and it is pretty much purely a guess, just based on logic, is they're probably going to show up like start of the second act or something like that. Um, and then yeah. that raises the question about what the hell happens after this fight. Like, does Kylo just go away or does he stick around? And I think there's probably good reason, like just from a narrative point of view, to think he sticks around. Um, what would you say, Kirsty? Do you have any more insight into this? Yeah, I think it might happen around the same time that you're, you're guessing. Um, and just by looking at The Force Awakens, um, it would seem redundant for them to have that fight at the end and for Rey to win again. So it's this idea that she's already overcome him physically and he's her antagonist. That's where the main conflict is. So what's going to happen next? She's overcome him physically, so how else does she defeat him? Defeat him in a sense, or integrate with the shadow? If we're going to draw a Luke and Vader young year yeah, parallel, yeah, exactly. Um, it raises all sorts of interesting questions. If, as we think, Kylo ends up stuck on this island with Luke and Ray, like mainly the question being, what the hell happens? Because that is quite a combination of characters, shall we say, to have stuck on an island together. It's almost like some kind of setup for a joke because they are all such like intense people and they all already have such like profound and defining links to each other. So obviously Kylo, he's this dark force user. He has very profound bonds with Ray and Luke. And then Ray is a force user, presumably not hundred percent sure where her allegiance lies. And she already knows Kylo, like in an antagonistic sense, from their previous encounters. And then Luke is this new older mentor figure, who if we're to believe the spoilers, she kind of has like a tense and strained relationship with, because apparently, according to making Star Wars, Luke wants Rey to kill Kylo, 
but Ray is resistant. She doesn't want to. Um, and that's the source of tension between them. And then with Luke, you have this old dude who appears to have all these like secrets and all these regrets over things that have happened in the past. And then he's reunited with the nephew who took everything from him, like destroyed his Jedi school, essentially. And also this young girl who has like a massive, massive role in what is essentially the destiny of the galaxy because she's so powerful. So as a combination, that is quite the cocktail of people, essentially. And it's like, yeah. what explosions are going to go off, essentially, when you put them together? Yeah. Coming back to these comments that Daisy said in various interviews, she goes on this big journey that she is at risk of emotional injury, again, as opposed to physical, you know, because there are lots of different types of struggle and suffering. So it suggests that that confrontation isn't just going to be a physical one. It's not just going to be about them having another lightsaber duel, but that something big is going to happen or something big is going to be revealed that changes the way Ray looks at things and looks at her life and the other yeah, people no, in exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. We've heard like, things like there's going to be another view on the flashback, for example, to the scene where Kylo is surrounded by bodies. Um, we're going to be revisiting that element of Ray's vision from The Force Awakens. And that is really interesting because it implies that we're going to be getting new information of some kind. And I think that would feed into this whole idea of Ray perceiving things differently and like getting a different angle on things. It will cause her to like reassess her preconceptions on things. Um, because I really do think that with Ray and Kylo Ren, the only way now for them is for them to like find a common ground of some kind. And I really do genuinely think there's a chance of that being romance. Like, if anyone looks at my blog, it's pretty obvious that I ship it. I ship Raylo. <laughs> um, and I honestly think there are legitimate reasons based in The Force Awakens to see that as a valid and legitimate direction for the story. Um, and again, it feeds into all this stuff we've been saying about the precedent for romance in Star Wars, about you having these two characters where they come from opposite extremes and have these like massive obstacles to overcome and then like reconciling that somehow and then forming this like passionate relationship and i genuinely think there's a chance there for rain kylo to come together on those terms yeah i do too and i know that this has been a very controversial perspective and reading force awakens in the wider star wars fandom so I can almost hear people turning the video off now and saying, that's enough of those two. <laughs> to be honest, I think we've been dropping pretty heavy hints that we ship it for a while. And apologies if you don't like it. We're sorry. Well, no, no actually, I don't think we are sorry. Like, it's just what we ship. And I don't think you should apologise for the form of engagement with fandom that you choose. Because that's what this is for us. But yeah, sorry, enough from me. Please go on. I definitely think it's worth us at a later episode date having a conversation about shipping and how that's perceived in the wider fandom because I don't think it's a coincidence that shipping is disproportionately um, populated by women, teenage girls and LGBT fans and it's so roundly mocked. I, I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think it's related. Yeah, and it no, I me. think that when you look at this kind of backlash against fandom that you can't help but see there's this kind of like latent sexism to it, essentially. Like you're saying, again, just because it is 
like such a feminine activity essentially like it's defined by that as much as as much as anything else and yeah it creates all these nasty elements but that is another conversation for another day please go on yeah but just just coming back to that reading of the force awakens and i didn't go into it intending to ship i i didn't even really know much about that area of fandom before december um but i am a huge fan i've always been a lover of stories with female protagonists Um, and i think that might be where a lot of the confusion or misreading is coming from because obviously this is the first star wars trilogy with a female protagonist and that has implications for stories and conventions and narrative structures um, Mm. and themes so um the idea of Rey falling in love with Kylo Ren seems ridiculous to people. I completely understand that because he's the villain in The Force Awakens and they have a high conflict. That's their dynamic. But there's a storytelling precedent here. And just off the top of my head, um, it comes from mythology in terms of you know stories like Eros and Psyche, Isis and Osiris, Hades and Persephone even, which you know you can even argue for some visual parallels in The Force Awakens with those two. Um, and then you can look at fairy tales with, you know, the genre of the animal bridegroom in search of a lost husband. I know that you mentioned before East of the Sun, West of the Moon. Um, Beauty and the Beast is probably the most famous example. And then you have tons of variants of those stories, like the Green Serpent and even modern feminist versions like Angela Carter. She writes a lot of those kind of things. Um, and then you can follow that storyline trajectory and narrative through Gothic fiction, which I'm a huge fan of, like Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, even stories with Byronic heroes that aren't in that genre, like Pride and Prejudice. And I think we'll have a later character dissection about Kylo Ren, but I think he does embody a lot of those Gothic anti-villain and Byronic hero traits. Um, And you can just see that from his appearance on on a really superficial level. so I think it mostly comes back to this idea that this is a first for Star Wars, that we've had male protagonists before, and that really does have an impact on where the story can go. And it's not just a case of Ray being Luke with boobs. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. And I think it's also a matter of Ray. She's a female protagonist, which is amazing. And that means she is bringing in more female viewers, which again, is fantastic. Um, and... I think an element of that is that a lot of those female viewers, they are going to be more interested in like the emotional side of things. And obviously not all women, because not all women are interested in romance, and I would never say that. But I reckon quite a significant proportion of the female viewers brought in by Ray, they would be quite receptive to that character having a romance and her emotions being explored in more depth. Because I know that appeals to me. like, And that's just something I enjoy as part of any well-told story because I enjoy like stories where there's a core of like love and like an exploration of that like in its many manifestations um like I'm not like I hate rom-coms for example it's not like I like I'm only interested in love stories but I do kind of like to have some kind of relationship along those lines to grasp onto if that makes sense some kind of like human or some kind of like human dimension like a emotional dimension because uh, i think people do often forget that's important and i think there's potential to have a really fascinating like and deep and profound love story 
with Ray and Kylo. So yeah, I, I think there's massive potential in that relationship for there to be something really compelling and exciting between those two characters. And I think it would be quite a different love story for Star Wars because there obviously are far more heavily antagonistic elements in the Rey and Kylo dynamic than there are with Anadala or Han and Leia, obviously. But I do think at the same time it is broadly part of the same tradition because it is about these characters who are crossing this massive divide because Rey is this lowly scavenger who comes from nothing, whereas Kylo was this like high-born son of a princess and he now fancies himself to be this kind of like crusading knight. So you have these characters who are the opposite poles of this conflict. And I think there's really interesting story potential in bringing them together. Like almost like a Romeo and Juliet type of deal, but presumably about them both dying in the end, because I don't think that's a Star Wars thing. Star Wars is about optimism and hope. Not about, oh god, life's awful, let's kill ourselves. Yeah, and I, I, it should go without saying, but let's just clarify that our understanding of this as a potential story direction hinges on Kylo Ren being yes. redeemed. Very important. I, which I consider likely. Mm. I think that's where things are going for him. Um, but it's I've seen a lot of people say, oh, so, you know, a Raylo reading of The Force Awakens is all about having Rey prop up Kylo Ren's story. I consider it the other way around. And it's all about how Rey would be a meaningful part. Like, that he would, his redemption fits into Rey's own journey. Mm-hmm. And I can't see how, I can't really see how that would work unless Rey has an emotional investment of her own. And if these two characters aren't related, and it doesn't look like they are, what else is going to be epic enough besides romantic love? Like, mm. you can argue for a platonic relationship, but I I don't know. I just don't think that that would be big enough or grand enough. It's not like Star Wars, because Star Wars is obviously space opera, so it's all these emotions writ large on this enormous space canvas. Uh, and like you say, Ray just randomly deciding that Kylo is actually a stand-up bloke who deserves to be redeemed like without feeling any attraction or there being like any deeper emotional connection to that I don't think that quite cuts it by Star Wars standards or by space opera standards so I think if like obviously if they're unrelated which we both are pretty much convinced they are um then I do think that a love story between them is the most viable way for the story to go because they are the young heroine and the young male villain of this story and they already have this profound link in relationship like it's mostly antagonistic at this point though it's not purely antagonistic particularly from kylo's side like and that has to go somewhere like and we've never had characters like this in styles before and i do think there's really interesting possibilities in having those characters that actually despite everything finding common ground and coming together like so yeah we will have to have like an epic Raylo discussion episode at some point because there's literally just so much to say and we've barely scraped the surface but we hope that we've at least contextualized it and explained like a bit about the history of love and romance and Star Wars and also why our views on what might happen in the sequel trilogy would fit into that precedent that's already been established. Um, is there any closing remarks you'd like to make, Kirsty? Um, 
not really because I know we'll revisit it at a later date um but just to to emphasize that I understand why it's a controversial topic for some people and how they can't see it happening because Ray hates Kylo Ren right now mm-hmm. I, I see that but um just remember that this is the first act in a story so it's almost like if she hates him now she can't hate him by the end like there has to be a progression because this is the central dynamic just like Luke yeah, and Vader no, was definitely. and I think that's actually a really good parallel to draw because I could see the Rain Kylo thing being almost like what happens with Luke and Vader but the love that brings Kylo back being romantic love rather than familial love because if you think back to Anakin and Padme, like romantic love was what ruined that relationship that doomed them, essentially and I think it would be really nice in terms of bringing the story full circle to, in the sequel trilogy, have romantic love instead of being this awful force that dooms everything being this redemptive force that ends up saving people and healing and I think that has the potential to be very powerful and beautiful yeah, and if you look at Kylo Ren in The Force Awakens, he has a lot of parallels with how Anakin is in Revenge of the Sith. He's much more like Anakin than Vader. He's trying to live up to what he understands Vader to be, but he's much more like Anakin. He's emotional, he's volatile, passionate. Um, so in a way, you can kind of see a reverse of that story, that he meets Rey, who you know, might be considered the Padme of this trilogy, but as the protagonist and that makes all the difference that we're seeing the story unfold through her perspective so right now she arguably hates and fears kylo ren or ben solo or whatever you want to call him but that can't be the case forever because there has to be a story here and she has to go yeah, on a journey exactly they can't remain static and just be swinging lightsabers at each other from here until the end of episode nine <laughs> it's not gonna happen like Ray is going on a journey, like Daisy said, and that journey is of necessity going to involve some kind of change or reevaluation of her relationship with and feelings towards Kylo Ren. And I'm personally very, very interested to see where they take it. Be very good. Um right. I was actually thinking of skipping the It Came from Reddit segment for this week again, Kirsty, just because we're really tight on time. Um, and to make sure we wrap this baby up in decent time without boring everyone. <laughs> um, so you were okay to skip straight to questions. Okay, cool. So we have question one, which is from Anna on Tumblr. And her question is, do you think Leia will be accepting towards Ben in the upcoming episodes, even after what happened with Han? Or will she hesitate wanting her son back? What do you think, Kirsty? Um, originally I thought that nothing would ever get in the way of Leia loving her son and I still think that she'll still love him but I think almost like for the narrative there has to be this idea of everyone else giving up on him except Rey because she's the heroine so we already have the spoiler about Luke thinking she needs to kill him so there's this idea that Luke has given up on his nephew and thinks that he's beyond saving Um, so we don't know much about what happens with Leia in episode eight, but I would kind of like the idea that she hadn't like given up on him in terms of she didn't love him anymore, but that she thought all hope was lost. So that kind of does bring it back to Ray and makes it her story. That's a really good way of putting it. And I could definitely see that being the direction they take with it, because like you say, is going to be very much about 
Ray the epitome of hope, the like embodiment of this young, fresh generation. I think she's going to have to represent this optimism and this belief that there's still good in Kylo, that the older generation will have just lost, because that's also part of like the overarching purpose of this new trilogy like in showing that things went wrong before and that all hope was lost but hope has come back again because Ray is essentially a new hope 2.0 <laughs> um, obviously without being a Luke clone because that would be really lame and boring she's very different from Luke but she does embody the hope in the way that Luke did in the original trilogy um, and yeah I, I kind of think she's more likely to believe that there's a way back for Kylo than Leia is Although, like you say, I do think Leia will still love her son because he's still her child at the end of the day. Have you got anything else left to add, Kirsty? Okay, cool. Um, Question two comes from Crush on Kylo on Tumblr. Great username. (laughs) And this question is, I want to know who exactly you guys think the murderers, traitors and thieves Kylo calls her friends are. So, Kirsty, who do you reckon the most likely candidates are? Um, my theory always was that Han was the murderer, Finn was the traitor, and Maz is the thief. Nice. Because I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I always had this reading of well, we knew in, in the earlier scripts that um, they were going to show how Maz got the saber from Kylo and the Knights of Ren. So mm. she seems to slot into that. And then we obviously know that Han is a murderer, like, from the very beginning. You can argue about whether that's justified or not, but Kylo obviously doesn't have a strong, positive relationship with his father. Yes. Um, and then we know that he considers Finn a traitor. He shouts it at him himself at the end of the film. So that seems to make most sense. Yeah, what do I you think? think that traitor is the most clear-cut of all of them, because Kylo literally screams, traitor! <laughs> um, there can't be much ambiguity left after that. Um, but you make a really good point about Mars. I hadn't even thought about Mars as one of the people Kyla might be referring to, but I think you're absolutely right. I think that line is mostly likely an artifact from the earlier version of the script where they had the flashback showing Mars stealing the lightsaber from Kylo, and they kind of didn't tidy up quite enough to think through the implications of that line and remove it. Um, which I think is good. It's a nice, intriguing line. So I'm glad it's there. But I think that without that scene, like it is easy to think that the thief might be Ham as well, because obviously he is this like shady smuggler type, and so I'm sure he's engaged in dodgy dealings that Kylo would be quick to label thievery, um, shall we say? <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. Han is a murderer like many times over like generally he's always been shown to do it for like what we can consider very easily forgivable or even good reasons because it's generally in military situations or he's defending himself or such like but he does murder poor old greedo because hand shoots first so maybe that's what um (laughs) kyla was thinking back to well i would say overall the purpose of that line is not just to like let us know what Kylo thinks of various characters but to show something about how he sees himself as well that it's almost this like twisted form of chivalry that he rescued Rey from these people um you know that he abducted her and he is the villain but Adam Driver and JJ have been quite clear in their comments that um 
Kylo thinks he's on the right side of history here. He doesn't think of himself as a villain. Um, he thinks that he's making the right decisions. So it's it's kind of an interesting insight into how Kylo sees himself, in yeah, my opinion. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, I do think it's very much about how Kylo perceives himself um, as just as much as how he perceives others. And like you say, it's almost you get this impression that he thinks that Rey is above these people. Like, he's like, how dare you associate with scum? Ugh, you should come and hang out with me instead. <laughs> um, it... What she needs Sorry? <laughs> yes, very much. Um, and, yeah, like, it's so interesting. I love the lines like that because there are just so many re- ways of reading them. And it's just really fascinating to consider all the subtext and all the different things that are going on. It's exciting. Um, right, and then we have our last question, which is from an Anon user on Tumblr, and they have said, I've read somewhere that the interrogation room Poe was in was very different from the one Kyla put Ray in. They do look different. Your thoughts? Um, just to get my own thoughts in here quickly, is yes, 100% they're different. Main reason because they're on completely different locations. So Poe is interrogated on the finalizer which is the great big ship you see frequently early on in The Force Awakens. Um, and then Ray is interrogated on Starkiller Base, which is obviously like on the super weapon planet, the snowy super, super weapon planet. So they are completely different rooms and completely different spaces. They look faintly similar, um, but there are very different like forms of lighting used and set dressing used. And there's all sorts of symbolism and potential meaning there that we could pop probably rabbit on about for a long time. But instead, I'll probably just link you to my essay because <laughs> I've written a, an essay on the interrogation scene and how Ray's interrogation compares to Poe's. Um, and that pretty much covers it in detail. Um, how about you, Kirsty? Do you have anything to add? Um, yeah, I wondered if a lot of that idea was coming out of... Um... And now you say it, it's, you're right that they are on completely different locations. So that makes sense. But, um, you know, do you remember Ashgate? <laughs> yes. Memories. So, <laughs> so when the TV was coming out, JJ made this comment about Kylo keeping the ashes of his enemies. And that's what you see when he takes his helmet off in Ray's interrogation scene and puts it down. He plunks it on this pile of ashes. And originally that scene was shot, or that clip at that moment, was shot when um, Kylo was in his private chambers. So you don't actually see that table in the the wide shots of the interrogation scene. Um, So it was completely spliced in from a different section. So I think there might have been some confusion and like some people thought that he'd taken Ray to his private quarters, which doesn't work because why would he have like that interrogation device there? I wondered whether I wondered whether that was a reason for people's confusion, but you're right; they are different rooms. Yeah, no. Um, I think in the final edit there was all kinds of, shall we say, spatial confusion <laughs> because of decisions like that, and it kind of makes you think. Like JJ, I know you like the shot of him slamming the helmet in the ashes, but it literally makes no sense. Just don't do it. Like, but then it does raise the question for me of where the hell does he put the helmet in the actual logic of the actual scene as filmed? Like, does he have like a little podium where he puts it? Is there a, a side table? Yeah, I think 
yeah, originally they were just having him put it down somewhere and Dodo was like, oh, this isn't dramatic enough. We need ashes. It's just like so extra. Like, I know that Kylo Ren is. He's dramatic as hell, just like Anakin was. But it just seems a bit silly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and on that silly note, probably a good point to end. So I think we're creeping up towards the two-hour mark. Um, and yeah, that was lots of fun, Kirsty. And it actually felt quite refreshing to come out and say, hell, I ship Raylo. Ship it, man. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, like I said, I have lots of feelings about shipping and how it's perceived and how the community itself operates, mm. but we can have a conversation about that at a later date. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just remember when I watched The Force Awakens, I was desperate to go online and talk about this amazing, compelling dynamic between this heroine and the villain. And then the overwhelming consensus was that they were cousins or long-lost brother and sister. So you had to go to the idea of Raylo. To, to have an honest conversation about it because there was so much antagonism. Um, I'm hoping that that is changing as more people come away from the idea that they're related just because, you know, post-bloodline everything, it, the timelines don't really add up. I know mm. some people will still think it's possible, but I don't know. We might kind of be seeing the turning of the tide. One can only hope. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think that's probably a good note to end on with hope. Um, so yeah, I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Tumblr at Star Wars Nonsense and on WordPress at Journal of the Star Wars. And Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter, so come and follow us and say hello. So, with that said, I think we are done for tonight. Thank you very much for listening, and do feel free to send in any questions you might have, as we would love to get our teeth into them. Thank you, and good night. Bye.